Welcome once again, everybody. My name is still Chris Kimston, and I am still the Young Adult and, Mich and Missions Minister, if I can say it, here at Hope Des Moines. And uh, you might not know this if you are relatively new to Des Moines or if this has been the only campus that you go to, but we are actually a part of a much larger uh, one might say conglomerate. Uh, we, we are one church in multiple locations, and we are one of those locations. So um, while most of the sermons that you hear are from John or from myself, uh, the, occasionally we know that it's good to hear from other senior leadership. So lead pastor Mike Householder, uh, our at Hope, our fearless leader, uh, it's good to hear from him every once in a while. And specifically today, we're starting a new sermon series called The Heart of Hope. And it's really taking a look at who we are at a church. What is at the center uh, of what we believe in who we are and what uh, specifically for us at Hope, uh, not just as Christians, but um, our history as a church. And there is no better person uh, to kind of give that history of hope than the guy who's been there from the very beginning. So uh, we are going to listen uh, to Mike out in West Des Moines. Now he knows that he is preaching to all of you. It's not just us. Every single campus is listening to Mike talk about the history of hope this morning. And uh, so he, he knows, he's, he's let us know he's praying for all of you. Uh, he's aware that he's speaking to you. So if he asks for any participation, uh, participate. He, he expects that for sure. If he makes any jokes, he won't know if you don't laugh at them, but you probably will because they're pretty good. And uh, so just feel free to um, treat that as if he were here with us. And uh, before we do that, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to be with you. We thank you for, uh, for everybody here at Hope Des Moines. We thank you for uh, our family here. We thank you for the, the various ways in which you have blessed us in this location, in this community. And God, we thank you uh, for our Hope family uh, all across the Des Moines area. We thank you for the ways that you have used each individual iteration of uh, this specific church uh, in its multiple locations to love the people where it is, God. So I pray that uh, you'd be with Mike as he preaches. I pray that your spirit would be on him and that um, you would use him uh, to give us something new and show us the new things that you are doing for and in us. And it's in your good name, Jesus, that we pray. Man, I love so many things about that story. It's in Luke chapter 5, verses 4 to 10, and it's a powerful one. Stories are like that. They have the power to transform us. When Jesus got into Peter's boat, he was about to be transformed. Jesus knew it. Peter didn't, which makes the story all the more intriguing to me. And Jesus knew not only would Peter's life start to get transformed here, but he would become the rock upon which God would build his entire church. It's pretty significant considering Peter's not... Uh, theologically trained, he's not a temple priest, he's not uh, super religious, he's a fisherman who's making his living on the Sea of Galilee on a daily basis. We're starting a series of sermons today called The Heart of Hope. We're going to get into our identity and what it means to be the church and what it means to be a Christian who follows Jesus like Peter did. And I'm really glad you're here. Hello, Hope. Uh, welcome. It's an exciting time around here. Vacation Bible School is getting ready to start. Uh, and this weekend, I know I'm not just preaching to you who are here in West Des Moines, uh, but I'm preaching to folks in Ankeny and Ames and at our Hope campuses there and at Waukee and Johnston Grimes and in Des Moines uh, and uh, all over the place through our online services. 
And I'm really excited about that, not because I'm preaching to a big crowd of people, that's intimidating and makes me really nervous. I'm excited about it because I really feel like God's given us something to share here, and I'm excited to, to get into that with you. When Jesus gets into Peter's boat, it's a big surprise to Peter. Peter knows a little bit about Jesus now because he's, 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 he's based on the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. Jesus is, and that's where Peter's business is. And so Peter has heard about Jesus by now, the crowds that he's drawing, the way he's teaching with authority, the miracles he's doing, the healings that he's doing. And now this miracle worker, healer, gets into his boat. But he's a rabbi, a teacher, Jesus is, and he's a carpenter by trade from childhood in Nazareth. Peter probably knows that too, and he knows he doesn't know a thing about fishing. So when this carpenter slash rabbi gets into his boat and says, go out and and throw your net in the deeper waters, if Peter just took it on a literal level, he could have said, what do you know about fishing? This is my job. I do this every day. And I know right now is not the right time to go out and throw my net out to catch any fish. It would be a total waste of time. There are no fish out there right now who are going to be caught. But to be polite to Jesus, this healer, this miracle worker, this guy who's drawn a big crowd, he says, all right, I'll go out, I'll show you. But what's interesting in the phrasing of this, and I don't think it's by accident, in verse 4 of Luke 5, is Jesus says to Peter, I want you to go out where it's deeper. I don't think that's on accident. I think that phrasing is very intentional in Luke's gospel. It's Jesus calling Peter to deeper waters. And we're not just talking about fishing for fish anymore, are we? It's Jesus calling you and me through the power of this story, this biblical story, to deeper waters, to a deeper life, to not just live superficially or or a, a shallow existence, to go through the motions of life or to make it all about the wrong things. What Peter's going to learn in the deeper waters isn't just that Jesus can help him catch a lot of fish and help his business. What he's going to learn is far more significant, far more eternal than that, far more transformational than that. What Peter's about to learn is he's been living for the wrong things. And that's why a lot of Christians who are hearing my voice right now have dissatisfied souls because we're living for the wrong things. And so Jesus gets into our boat today and he says, let me take you to some deeper waters. Let's go out. Let's, let's get to the heart of who you are. And let's get to the heart of who you are as, as a child of God, as somebody who's been created by God. But let's also get to the heart of who we are together collectively as a church, a Lutheran Church of Hope, as one church in many different campuses. Go out to the deeper waters, Peter. What Peter's going to discover is living life for ourselves is going to lead to a dead end. It's not about us. Oh, it's very tempting to make life about us, to make everything about us, to make friendships about what can I get out of this friendship, to make a marriage about what can I get out of this marriage, to, to make a, 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 a job, what can I get out of this job, to, to make a, a neighborhood about what can I get from these neighbors. It's very tempting to live life selfishly, but of course, the problem with that is you'll always have a dissatisfied soul because you were made for more. And if you make everything about consuming, what can I get out of this worship service today? What's in it for me? What what, what can I get out of this church? What can I get out of my life group? What can I get out of this men's group or this women's group? What can I get out of these things? What's what's here for me? If we make it all about consumption, well, no, even if we receive what we were looking for, we'll end up with dissatisfied souls. So Peter's going to learn as he goes from the shallow to the deeper waters of life 
not just the Sea of Galilee to fish for fish, but to fish for meaning and purpose in life, he's going to learn that living for himself and what's in this for him is the wrong motivation. He's also going to learn what God teaches us in the totality of scripture, which is even living for other people, which you could argue pretty persuasively and pretty quickly is better than living selfishly for ourselves, is often going to lead to the same dissatisfied souls and the same dead ends. Because sometimes other people have good motives, but a lot of times they don't. And so if we end up surrendering our lives to somebody else's uh, uh, vision for us, and we say, this is who we want you to be, even though we know that's not who we are, this, this is what we want you to do, this is what you're supposed to be, it's, it's like the overbearing parent insisting that their highly talented kid, and their kid's talent is in uh, computers, needs to be an all-state soccer player. Well, that's just not going to work for a kid who has other gifts. And so the tension there, if that kid says, well, I'm just going to live my life for my overbearing parent, and I'm going to try to become something I don't have the ability to become, that's going to lead to a dead end. If we live our lives for ourselves, we're going to get frustrated and be discontent. If we live our lives for other people, it's not going to be enough. It's better, but it's not going to be enough. So we say, oh, okay, I see where this is going. So live your life for God, right? That's what we should do. We should live our lives for God. Yes. That would be infinitely better. And that's a huge step of spiritual maturity. To start to live for something beyond ourselves and beyond other human beings, fallen, flawed human beings. And to live our lives for a God who has our best interests at heart. Who knows us better than we know ourselves. Who knows the details of our lives better than we do. And so we start living for this God. But here's the distinction that might surprise some of you. And it might be the thing that's kind of the roadblock that's keeping you from the freedom of the Christian life. You say, I, I read about this freedom, I hear about this joy, this untouchable joy that your daily circumstances can't touch for a Christian, but I don't feel it, I don't have it. I hear about this peace that passes all human understanding that the Bible talks about, but I don't have it. I'm trying to live my life for God. I'm trying to do all these religious things. I'm trying to be spiritual. I'm trying to check all the boxes on the spiritual checklist of all the things that I gotta do in order to live a full, satisfied, soul-satisfying life. So how come my soul isn't satisfied? Come on out to the deeper waters, Peter. And I'll teach you to take one more significant and very important step that gets right to the heart of hope and right to the heart of what individual Christians within this church are called to be and created to be. We are created to be in communion with our Creator and in relationship with one another. But we're not going to completely get there if we're certainly not going to get there if we live selfishly for ourselves or if we live for other people, but we're not even going to get all the way there if we just live our lives for God. We're going to get exhausted and burnt out is what we're going to get. There's a better way. And this is what Jesus is teaching Peter in the boat. And this is where his transformation starts to get very deep and very significant and very real. And this is a story that isn't just about Peter. It's a story for you and for me and for anybody who can hear my voice. If Peter went out on the boat with Jesus and just started fishing for Jesus... Okay, I'll throw the net in for you. I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. It's, it's me doing it for you, God. He wouldn't have gotten this result. What allowed the miracle to happen was Jesus started doing it for Peter and through Peter. Instead of all the things that we do for God, we reverse that. And then we start to hit our spiritual stride. 
And then we start to come to the point where our souls fill up and are satisfied. When it's the wind of God's spirit blowing through us, instead of us trying to blow all the wind we have inside of us into the sails for God. One will make your boat go nowhere, the boat of your life. The other, once you say, oh, it's not about me doing this for God, it's about God doing this through me. You say, oh, you're splitting theological hairs and spiritual hairs and biblical hairs, and there's hardly any difference between the two. Oh, the difference is massive. And I've lived it, and I'm here to testify today that the difference makes all the difference in the world. If you're living your life for God, and that's as far as it goes, that's better than the alternatives, but it isn't what God made you for. It isn't where you'll find this full communion. It isn't what this story is all about, and stories have the power to transform our lives. Our son, our oldest son, John, got married here at Hope uh, a week ago Saturday at our West Des Moines campus in the chapel. Here's a picture of John and his groomsmen, his little brother Danny, uh, who's the campus minister in Ames, uh, Chris, his friend from high school, was the quarterback at Waukee when John was the wide receiver, so they've got stories. Oh, J John and his brother have stories. This is John Orr, who he played football with at Wartburg College. John had a tryout for the Baltimore Ravens last year. He's a large human being. Uh, and, and a couple of friends from Charlotte where John works, his wife's little brother, who's huge, uh, and that's me peering in the background over there. Uh, these are larger than average human beings. So Saturday morning of John's wedding last week, he comes downstairs, it was kind of cute, it was his last night in his boyhood room, right, by himself. And he comes downstairs on Saturday morning of his wedding and he says, Dad, I can't believe this, I've got the stomach flu. He's like, oh, no you don't. <laughs> I mean, I realized that was a risk to say that, that I was kind of stepping out on a limb there, because you don't want to say to somebody who has a stomach flu, no, you don't. I mean, that's just mean. But I was 99% sure he didn't have the stomach flu, because I've done approximately 1,274 weddings in my life, and I have often seen this phenomenon called groom butterflies. Uh, and it wasn't because he was nervous about marrying Liz. He realizes the massive upgrade he's getting. I mean, he, he gets that. He's like all householder men, he's marrying up. Uh, so he, he, it's not that, it's just this tension of the day, the schedule, the getting everything right, the showing up on time, the making sure he's got the details and everything fits. And, and he and Liz are hosting a dinner for his wedding party and families later that night and, and making sure they got all that right. And, and all, this, all these moving parts. It's kind of overwhelming. He said, oh, don't, don't worry about it, John. I said, get in the car. We're going to breakfast. We'd prearranged to go with all of his groomsmen and his ushers who aren't pictured here and his father-in-law and his grandfather-in-law and myself. I was going to take them all to the machine shed for breakfast. It was a great idea, by the way. It was a great idea. So we get one of these tables. There's 14 of us, larger than average human beings, sitting around a table on these little machine shed wooden chairs uh, the round table, they put us in the corner, which was smart on their part. And uh, it's a table that I think is set up for 10, 12 at the most, and there's 14 of us, shoulder to shoulder, uncomfortably close. But that discomfort as men lasted about a second and a half when some of John's best friends in life, his groomsmen, started telling stories. Stories about doing life together. 
Stories about being on the high school football team and, the, and, and being in the college dorms together and, and, and putting NASCAR videos together at three in the morning on a deadline and, and doing all these doing life together. And there was laughter. And it wasn't just sort of the polite, oh, oh that's funny. It was, it was gut from the deep down inside kind of, oh my gosh, that was so hilarious. And I'm thinking as a father, I should only be hearing half of these stories just for appropriateness. <laughs> I learned a lot about my son over the next 90 minutes, but it was all hilarious, just hilarious. It's like grown men waiting in line to tell another story. You think that's funny. You know what else happened that day? Or you remember what happened the month after? Oh, you think that's good. Wait till you hear this. These are men who've done life together. The Bible says this about that. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. You could say sisters, you could say families, you could say friends, you could say neighbors, you could say co-workers, you could say your small group, your life group at church, your women's group, your men's group. How wonderful and pleasant it is when you have people to do life together with, when you have stories to tell, stories that change us. On the way out of the restaurant, two things struck me. One was, why did I volunteer to pay for this? Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to do a lot of weddings just to pay for this wedding. And second, how uh, funny it was is we're walking to the car when the groom who had the stomach flu said to me on the way to the car, oh, that's weird. I feel a lot better now. I'm totally fine. It's the power of stories told amongst people who are doing life together. So why is it that more Christians don't experience what the Bible says they're supposed to in their relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 that our relationship with God is supposed to be like a marriage. It's like a wedding and the joy that it brings. Marriage is an illustration, the Bible teaches us, of the way Christ and the church are supposed to be one. You're the church. The church isn't a building, biblically speaking. The Greek word for it is an ecclesia, that's people. The people who show up in the building to worship, you are the church. Marriage is an illustration of the way Christ, the groom, and the church, the bride, are supposed to be one. About how the two come together and they leave their families and now they become one. They become a new family together. They become a couple. And what God has joined together, no one is supposed to separate. The two become one. This is an illustration of the relationship that we as the church, the body of Christ, are supposed to have with Christ. It's supposed to be this deep bond, this union. Why is it more Christians don't have that? Because truth be told, if you're honestly hearing this and you think about it, you say, yeah, uh, you know, I know that that's what it's supposed to be, but I don't have it. Why is it more churches don't have that? Why is it more churches aren't growing the way the, the church grew once upon a time in biblical times? Why, why is it that that doesn't happen? I think it's because we stop before we're supposed to stop. We, we get, even if we graduate from living selfishly for ourselves or living for other people, and, the, and for Christians that could be living for other people's pieties or the programs or the way they want it to be done, and, and then we get into all these silly debates about style and format and traditional worship or contemporary worship. Do you know what the Bible says about that? It's for both. It's for whatever, it's for whatever gets the Jesus thing going. We get into debates between, false debates, false dichotomies between evangelism and discipleship. We say, I'm in an evangelism Christian or an evangelism church. And as I'm a discipleship church, it's both. 
If you want to be a discipleship person and that discipleship doesn't lead to evangelism, guess what the Bible says? That's not discipleship. If you want to be all about evangelism and it's not about making disciples, the Bible says that's not evangelism. You don't understand this debate between the two. Or, or the new one, the trendy thing to say now is, well, I don't want to get people to come to church. I want the church to go out there and come to the people. Why does it have to be either or? The Bible says both are good. Both are what the church does. Bringing people into God's house is a holy and a good thing. And when God's house and God's people go out into the world to serve, that's a good thing too. Why is it Christians have this tendency to say, oh, it's not this, it's that. When the Bible says it's both, it is this and that. It's discipleship and evangelism. It's traditional and contemporary. It's bring people to church and send the church out. It's both. Why do we have to dismiss one and throw the, the biblical baby out with the bathwater all the time? That's such a bad habit we have. We gotta get over that. It's not about the style or the format. It's not about the messenger, it's about the message. If for you, your faith is all about, oh, I, I, I like it when this preacher preaches or, or when this singer sings or when, I, I'm really into this Christian blogger or, or this author or this CD from this group and that's what my faith is really all about, you're following the wrong God. It's not about the messengers, it's about the message. The Bible doesn't say, oh, it's the people that bring the message that make all the difference. The Bible says it's the message that we bring the word goes out and it doesn't come back empty. It accomplishes its purpose. Maybe that's tripping you up. That you're more about the personality and the messenger than you are the message. It's Jesus. Paul goes on to put it this way. He says, I planted the seeds, Apollos watered them, but it's God who makes it grow. It's God who makes it grow. It's God who makes it grow. I find it almost humorous around here. So last week we had a wrap. Were you here last week? Here at the West Des Moines campus for the offering. We had a, it was awesome. Two young adult men in our church, they should go on tour. They, they were doing a Jesus, I, I don't know what else to call it. It was a Jesus wrap. And Ryan Tunick, who's our youth director at our Des Moines campus, had a thing, a move he did. He did like this thing like this. And while well, he's rapping at the same time. I got dizzy, it was awesome, it was great. I was sitting right back there, Jeremy was preaching, it was a great service. And at the end of their song, everybody who was 30 and under spontaneously stood up. Ah! And people my age and older are like, well I suppose, okay, yeah. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do the polite sort of half standing ovation. It's like the complete opposite demographic when the gospel quintet sings here at Hope, right? <laughs> Who I love, they're awesome. They're the best quintet anywhere. They're better than the Gaithers. I heard the Gaithers at Billy Graham's funeral. They blow them away. The Gaithers were off pitch. These guys are on. <laughs> well, they're getting old, give them a break. But I mean, our guys are young and sharp and they were, they were right on it. And when they sing here, which is frequently, you know, once or twice a month, People love, they're singing at the I, they're doing the, the Star Spangled Banner at the iCubs game this afternoon, representing hope. Yes, fish for people, that's awesome. You praise God for that. Some of you are like, <laughs> the, the gospel quintet groupies are like, yeah! And they're all over 60 or 55. Yeah, well, it's okay. 
Embrace it. It's okay. Those are your people. It's all right. And everybody else is like, yeah, we love the gospel quintet too. But it's the 55 plus crowd that leads the standing ovation every time they sing. I love that about hope. We're an intergenerational church. It isn't, though, about the style. If you say only this music is Christian, and this music isn't, pick your style, whichever one is more for you. If you say it's this and not that, or it's that and not this, you've got a big challenge from Scripture. The Bible says it's not the style, it's the message. It's not the messenger, it's the word that goes out. That could be tripping you up. You could be making it all about things that it isn't supposed to be about instead of the content of those things, the spirit in those things, the wind of God's spirit in those things. When we move from doing life for ourselves or for other people or even for God and we let God start to run through us, it opens us up, it sets us free, and we start to hit our stride. It's like the difference between a Fred Flintstone footmobile and a wind-powered sailboat cruise. I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about, so I'll just, no, maybe I'll explain just a little bit. When I was a little kid, I loved the Flintstones. Meet the Flintstones that are modern Stone Age family from the town of Bedrock. There's Fred and there's Wilma and there's Betty and Barney and Bam Bam and Dino. But something always bothered me about the Flintstones, and it was their car. First of all, just physically, the turning radius on that car has got to be awful. I mean, how do you, how do you, what, how do you maneuver that thing? It's got a turning radius of 700 yards, right? But the thing that bothered me even more about the Flintstone footmobile is that you had to use your feet to power it. So how is it an advantage for Fred Flintstone to get in his car in the morning at, at his house and walk his entire heavy Stone Age car all the way to work? Wouldn't it be easier just to walk without the car? Why get in a car and have to push that too all the way back and forth to work or to the restaurant where he gets the rib that tips his car over? Why, why would you do that? What's the, what's the advantage of this mode of transportation? And you're thinking, you were a weird five-year-old to think about all that. But it bothered me. I'm like, there's no, I like George Jetson's space car a lot better. This drives me, it's easy. This is the way too many of us are doing the Christian life. It's the way too many churches are doing church. We will make this church grow. It will be all about our programs. It'll be about our style. It'll be about our format. It'll be about our traditions. It'll be about our piety. It'll be about our preachers. It'll be about our musicians. It'll be about the way we do it. It'll be about us. And we're getting into the car and we're walking it. And we'll get as far as we can walk. Or we could get into the wind-powered, Holy Spirit wind-powered sailboat and learn that life and church is all about learning to set our sails to the wind of God's Spirit. Are you starting to get this? What does that mean? How do we set our sails to the wind of God's Spirit? How do we experience that union like a, like a bride and a groom have with God? How do, we, how do we develop that intimate faith, that connection to our creator, that communion with the one who made us? How do we, how do we discover what Peter discovered a day out in the boat? How do we go to the deeper waters? 
Folks, you've got to get into the Word. You've got to immerse yourself in it. And I'm not talking about memorizing 72 scriptures. That's fine. That's a good discipline. Do that. I'm not talking about making sure you do daily devotions every day without fail. That's also a very good thing. Do that. But if you really want to come to life spiritually, immerse yourselves in the stories of God. Let his stories start to become your stories. The kind of stories that groomsmen tell around the round table at Iowa Machine Shed so that we practically get kicked out of the restaurant. Let them be your stories, because they are your stories. They're stories about God. They're stories about the disciples from half a world away and almost 2,000 years ago. But, oh, they're stories about you and me, too. Come to the deeper waters, Jesus says to Peter, but he's saying it to you. Come to the deeper waters. Let me show you what life is. Peter, you could walk on water until you get afraid and then you start to drown and I save you. Peter, you're going to deny me three times because you're human and you aren't perfect, but I'll restore you three times. Peter, do you love me three times? And I'll send you out to lead my church. And I won't wait for you to know how to, to fluently speak Hebrew in the Old Testament or Greek in the New Testament and parse all the verbs and, and do the synoptic parallel comparisons and understand all doctrine and history and theology. I will teach you the deeper truths in life just as soon as you get into my boat and start to realize I'm telling these stories for you. It's fascinating to me that another kind of unfortunate trend in Christianity these days is people who say the only kind of faithful teaching, Bible teaching, is verse-by-verse expository teaching, even though Jesus never did that. What did he do? How did he teach and preach? He told stories about deep theological waters that were simple truths that were fully accessible by fishermen and Pharisees and everyone in between. I'm getting into your boat, Jesus says today. I don't want to teach you how to live. I want to teach you how to find the life that you've been longing for that will satisfy your soul. I want you to learn my stories so that you become fluent in them, so that you realize they're for you, they're about you. I want you to go to the cross and not just say that's history. I want you to go to the cross and realize that is God's love being poured out for you. I want you to come to Vacation Bible School and say, we're not just doing this as a program for kids or even for God for kids. We're doing this as a move of the Holy Spirit that runs through the sails of this church and changes everything. The story of hope is an embarrassing and a humiliating one for me in its origins. And if you've taken Alpha, you've heard me tell this story at the retreat. But I'm going to do a short version of it here because I think it fits to the heart of hope and our identity and clarifying that identity. This is who we are. Once upon a time, 25 years ago last month, I was called to be the second mission developer at Lutheran Church of Hope. The church was two years old. But the ELCA, our denomination, wanted to shut it down because it wasn't going anywhere. The pastor was here before me, wonderful guy. His name's Lloyd Menke. He just, circumstances were impossible for him. He didn't have a place to meet. There wasn't a place to worship. It was impossible. And so he finally, after two years, says, I I got a, I'm taking a call to a church in Minnesota where he's still this wonderful, faithful pastor to this day. That's when the ELCA called me after they were talked into starting the church over again in the summer of 1993. I showed up and I looked at the statistics and it said that the average attendance at Hope for the four months 
The last four months of that first two-year run was 20. And the first Sunday I showed up when we reopened it, it was 56. And I thought, (laughs) word must be out. (laughs) And here's why. Because I was a 29-year-old young man uh, who didn't have a big ego in other ways, but I had a big ego when it came to theology and spiritual things. In seminary, they basically teach us that to be a pastor means you're going to wear a tweed jacket with patches, smoke a pipe, listen to NPR, sit in your study all day, and people will come and ask you theological questions. And it'll be great. And that never happens. (laughs) Ever. Well, once every two years that happens. Ministry is way more real than that. Way more down to earth. Way more painful. Way more exciting. Way more adventurous. Way more honest. I had to learn to stop trying to turn Christianity and being a pastor into walking a Fred Flintstone footmobile from point A to point B. And I was about to. My ego was about to get blown up. The Bible says those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be lifted up. Well, I was the former. So I needed to be humbled. And God knew it. I, uh, I showed up the next Sunday expecting what? If it was 56, up from 20, maybe we'll get 80 this week. That'd be awesome. And I'm driving this Fred Flintstone footmobile. This is going to be great. 12 people showed up. 12. Four of them were householders. <laughs> so I said to Sally, we need to adopt just to get more kids at church, have a Sunday school. Um, The next week there were 12. The week after that there were 12 again. And that's when it crushed me. (laughs) Because I knew we were about a month away from shutting it down. You can't go on forever like that. And there's a lot of pressure from all sorts of different angles. I had to report to the bishop and he's like, ooh, maybe... Maybe this just isn't going to go. And I knew what that meant. It meant I needed to start looking for another call to go back to some other kind of church. I called my dad, who's a pastor. He's very wise that Sunday night. And I said, Dad, this is a disaster. This is a huge mistake. What should I do? He said, have you prayed about it? I said, yeah. He says, what's your prayer? And I'm embarrassed to say this because my prayer, I don't remember exactly what I said to my dad, but it was basically this. God, fix those people. Fix these people who don't get me. Fix these people who aren't coming to church. Fix these people so that they get in my Fred Flintstone footmobile and I can drive them around and we can be a church. And it's going to be great. And it's going to be built on me. My dad gently said, that's the wrong prayer. I don't know why it was that moment instead of some other one that I didn't notice, but it was that moment. That was the day hope started to grow. Because I hung up the phone and by now I'm shaking. And I'm a Norwegian, so I don't get really emotional about these things, but I fell to my knees. And I did some carpet time with God. And I started with a heartfelt apology. God, I am so sorry. I am train wrecking this church. I'm, I'm ruining it. I'm closing it down. 
Because I quickly realized that night, because it's all about me. Because I'm walking around trying to do it all for myself and for them and sometimes for you too, God. But what I haven't learned is what would this church look like if you do it through us? And so from now on, God, if anything good ever happens around here, you'll get all the glory and all the credit because I've seen where I can take it. And I would like to see where you can take it, although I will tell you the truth, when I'm praying that part of the prayer with God that night, I thought, I doubt you can do anything, God, with these people. (laughs) Oh, ye of little faith, I think Jesus said to Peter later in a boat, That next Sunday, as God would have it, three new families showed up, which may not sound like a lot to you, but when you only have six people who are there voluntarily, that's a lot. It was Caroline and Tom Becker, Pastor Caroline now. She wasn't then. It was Wayne and Jean Cooper. It was the Becker's three daughters, too. Wayne and Jean Cooper and their daughter, Kimberly, and Paul and Mary Lance and their two sons. And suddenly, we had a confirmation class of two. (laughs) And we had a Sunday school that was tripled in size. My kids and their kids. And we had church. And the next week, four new families showed up. And it, this is the cool part. By the power of God's spirit and us just learning to set our sails to his wind, it's been that way ever since. We haven't had a year where we didn't grow as a church in 25 years. Praise God for all of that. How did that happen? Paul puts it very simply, and this isn't just for the church, it's a reminder for us as a church, but it's also for you as a Christian, as a child of God. Paul says, I planted the seed in your heart. Some of you are talking about, oh, I need to hear sermons from this guy instead of that guy, or that guy instead of that guy. Paul instead of Apollos, Apollos instead of Paul. I like this kind of music, that kind of music. Paul says, I planted the seed in your heart, so Paulus watered it, but it was God who made it grow. I do what I do. Other people in this church do what they do. It's not that we become passive and just sit back and say, God, if you're going to do it, you just plop down a church right here and it'll happen. No, he, he still runs his wind through our sails, so, so we participate. We're involved. We use the gifts God has given to us for his glory, not ours, or not to impress other people, or not even to impress God, but for the glory of God and for the sake of the mission he gave to us, to learn, Peter, how to fish for people, to learn how to go out there and drop your nets according to my spirit, according to my wind. I'm the one who will make it grow. It's my word. It's my message. It's not the messenger. And that's why so many churches become flashes in a pan. They grow and they grow and they grow because they have some charismatic personality. And then they crash because they were built on the charismatic personality instead of on the solid rock foundation of Jesus Christ. And we will not go there as a church. This will always be a Jesus church. It will always be built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his power to transform our souls. And if we ever lose that, if we ever get a big ego and we start going out into the world and rest, well, it's all about Lutheran Church of Hope. It's all about the way we do it. No, it's not. Don't say that. It's not biblical and it's not true. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about the wind of his spirit hitting our sails. It's about us learning from experience and trying to share that with other churches now, how to set those sails. 
in this kind of climate, in this kind of weather, in this particular time, with these kinds of generations, generational things happening in our world. We want to share that. We don't want to exclusive. We're not competing with other churches. We want to help other churches. And we want them to help us. We're in this together. It's learning to let God's spirit lead and guide us. I learned that um, at VBS, the first year we did that, second year we did that, when we got into our building. We did what every Lutheran church did at VBS at first. We took the Lutheran publishing house, VBS in a box. <laughs> and we took out the programs and we handed out, it's got the stickers and the flannel graphs and the music and, and the skits all written out and everything's great. The problem is, bless their hearts, the music was unsingable this one particular year and the skits went way over the heads of the kids. They were written for like seminary professors. And you know, six-year-olds were like, I don't know why Fred drives that car. How's he gonna get anywhere? So uh, halfway through the week, uh, Mike Horseman, our worship guy at the time, now he's our local missions coordinator here in our West Des Moines campus. He and I got together and we said, we gotta, we gotta do something different. So Wednesday morning we showed up Five minutes early and we made up a skit. Total improv, not that good, but it's just what we had to do. And Sally brought a cassette tape with Bible camp music, which was infinitely better than the VBS music that particular year. And so we sang Bible camp songs that day and the kids loved them. And then we got done and we realized we don't have any more songs to sing <laughs> and we're out of skits. So I just told some, I just told some Bible stories. Stories that transform lives. The power of God's love poured out. And uh, we still had five minutes to fill at the end. So I said, okay, kids, let's sing Jesus Loves Me. So I'm like, God, I've got nothing for these kids. I've got nothing for you. You're going to have to do this through, please. We got nothing left. Let's sing Jesus Loves Me, which is a brilliant theologian Karl Barth once said is the greatest theological statement ever written. And so we sang. Sing it with me at every campus, would you? Wherever you are. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. That's how we sang it. Yes, Jesus loves me. One more time, louder. Yes, Jesus loves me. How do you know, kids? And I was like, wow, that really went well. So I said to the kids, hey, you want to sing it again? And they're like, no. I was like, oh, do you want to sing it opera style? I'm like, God, give me something. Do you want to sing it opera style? And I said, Sally, get on the drums. No! Do you want to sing it country western style? No offense to countrymen. No! He said, do you want to sing it rock and roll style? And like, one boy in the back, yeah! I'm like, we're going with that. And I said, give me a beat, baby! You didn't know she's a drummer, did you? Her dad's a drummer, her grandpa's a drummer, she grew up with drums. I said, okay kids, sing it after me now! Those of you who are like 25 are like, I remember this. <laughs> Jesus loves me. I totally blew that, see? <laughs> Jesus loves me. 
Help me out. This I know. For the Bible. Let me hear an Anthony tells me so. Come on, Ames. Little ones do. Come on, Joaquin. They belong. They are weak, but come on, Justin Grimes. He is strong. Give me a J. Wow. God rewrote the text of my life when I opened the book of my heart to his eyes. That's the secret to life. Let him write the story of your life. Let him author it. Let his stories be your stories. Don't worry about being a fool for Christ. Because the view... (laughs) The satisfied soul. That's how VBS was born. That's how this church was born. That's the heart of hope. When remember, it's not about us. It's about the one who writes the book. It's about the one who writes the stories. It's about the one who wants to have communion with us and us to have that bond with one another. And the beat goes on. Take a look at this video and then we'll turn it over to all the campuses. Around 1996, uh, they start right around the time that Mike was talking about when things were starting. They also started a preschool. I was in that preschool. Uh, things are a little bit different now. Um, and so I grew up. I say that because I grew up around hope, and I've heard it all from a lot of different people. Oh, you're from that monster big church that's just trying to get as many people as possible. You know, you guys do ridiculous things like. If you say to yourself, what you just saw for VBS looks a little over the top, here's, here's the secret. It absolutely is over the top. It absolutely is crazy. It absolutely is a little too much. Because people ask me all the time, they're like, oh, you're from Hope. Oh, you work at Hope. Isn't, I mean, aren't you guys already too big? And hear me, the reason that we do this is because as long as there is someone in this city that doesn't know that one They were made in the image of God. Two, that that God loves them, not for who they'll be, not for who they've been, but who they are right now in their brokenness and that they are being called to something greater because God sees that goodness in them. As long as someone doesn't know that, we're not done yet. And we're going to do anything that we can to make sure that somebody knows that. We're going to make fools of ourselves We're going to jump around. We're going to dance. We're going to sing ridiculous songs. We're going to do crazy things in sermons. We're going to do a little too much because that is the pursuit that we have for those who need to know how loved they are. So that isn't just something that we learn about, but that's, that's something that we get to celebrate. So as a campus... As a whole church, uh, I would invite you to stand. And as we close today, let's sing about the God that made us in his image and the God that sees us right for who we are and says that we are very, very good.